Welcome to See You on the Other Side, where the world of the mysterious collides with the world of entertainment. A discussion of art, music, movies, spirituality, the weird, and self-discovery. And now, your hosts, musicians and entertainers who have their own weakness for the weird, Mike and Wendy from the band Sunspot. You survived it, Mike. You I survived did. the big birthday weekend. Did Congratulations. I, thank you very much, and thank you for celebrating with, with me, Wendy. It really was fun to be around. Great friends and an awesome performance on Friday night. Yes, that was so much fun. We had a great turnout, and everybody was really uh, in the celebratory mood. They were, and they loved, they loved <laughs> making fun of me for being old, too. So that really, yeah. really stuck it to me nice and It's what nice we do, hard. though. Yes. It's what we do. So, uh, no, that was super fun. Um, enjoying Yahara Bay Distillery's fine different craft liqueurs. Yeah. And their nice new location. They made a sunspot drink. That's right. The sunspot eclipse. I had a couple of those and they were delicious. Yeah, I had a couple dozen of those and they were great. <laughs> it had rocker vodka in it. So our friend rocker makes his own vodka. Mm-hmm. Also celebrating his birthday. And uh, yeah, he said he turned 40 for the 11th time. Hey, uh, all right. <laughs> but uh, so uh, bad, it, it, has ro- it has rocker's vodka. And it had orange juice and a splash of what I thought was grenadine, but it was cranciello. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And cran- That was really tasty. It was. And cranciello is a different kind of li- liqueur they make at the place. So it really was, we were living with local music, local alcohol, local pizza, you know. Yes. From, it's a, so it really was like a made in Madison kind of event. And a special cake. Oh, yeah. By our friend with the sunspot logo and everything yeah so cool thanks lisa for making that awesome cake so really yeah. it really was a fun event and then we tried to go to a haunted location afterwards the frequency but they were closed oh struck out on that one yeah so but we, we still got we the, continued the party we still got the party at the dice and that is the, that's right <laughs> that is the most madison of locations so it's com- completely appropriate and yes, uh, very yeah it was really nice and in fact in the interview today wendy when uh Allison from Milwaukee Ghosts and I talked to Joshua Cutchen. He has gone to grad school in Madison. Or he, I think he got, I'm sorry, he, he got his undergrad in Madison from the music department. Oh, just like us. Yeah, right. But he was born in like North Carolina and then he came to Madison for college and now he's back in the South in Georgia where he's working. But he was like, oh, a night out in Madison. I'm so jealous. <laughs> oh, that's nice. Yeah. Nice to know that people think fondly of going out in our city. Yeah. And well, the funny thing is, and to anybody who hasn't been here, um, you know, when we go on tour and we talk to people, that that's the one thing they remember. Like, oh, Madison, man, that's a fun town. So, like the one thing they know is that we know how to party here. So that's a, I guess it's, that's a friendly thing. Yeah. They always remember that. And they always ask about smut and eggs. Oh, yeah. To explain this restaurant to you, it's a restaurant that features, well, eggs, brunch. So you go there, you can go there Saturday or Sunday and have a nice brunch. But the TVs, instead of playing the Badgers game or instead of playing uh, football or whatever's going on, uh, plays hardcore pornography. (laughs) So So that's what people remember about our city. Isn't that great? Yeah. So you can enjoy enjoy a little hardcore uh, (laughs) with your, uh, I mean... Hash browns. That's hardcore and hash browns. Yeah. Oh, that'd be a good name. That's a good alternate name for it. Hardcore and hash browns. <laughs> That's the vegan option. Um, anyway, oh. so it's and, and Party Madison. So it was, uh, so anyway, let's introduce Josh Cutchin a little bit to you when is that. Yes. He's interested in, in some of the parts of the paranormal that we don't always talk about. 
You know, so like we think about uh, hearing a ghost. You hear a moon or footsteps or you see a figure or a shadow. You see a UFO. You know, you see it in the sky. You Sorry. May, maybe you hear a little beeps or boops or something like that. Okay, maybe you don't. Maybe the UFO is too far away. And I just, <laughs> But it, you, when we think of the senses of a sighting, yeah. we think of hearing something. Bigfoot throwing a rock against a tree. You think of seeing a big ape looking you know, somewhere yeah. like sitting there. Or a footprint. Right. Um, his books, The Trojan Feast and The Brimstone Deceit, talk about the taste and the smell of the paranormal. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And I do recall other people that we've chatted with mentioning the smell thing mm-hmm. and on several instances. And what's interesting is that how um, these different experiences people have often will have the same smell associated with it. So, so Bigfoot can have the same smell as a UFO. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, and that's some of the stuff we talk about in the interview. But what about taste? Well, the taste is how um, food is often involved in paranormal experiences. We really get into fairies today. Okay, excellent. Uh, the fae. And a lot of it, it talks about how a lot of people's experiences and legends that happen with the fae and you know fairies because we, we talk about Patrick Rothfuss in the interview, but you've read The Wise Man's Fear, obviously. Oh, yeah. And you've got yeah, like one of my favorites. Right. But it's a hundred too many pages where he's with the Queen of the Fae <laughs> hanging out, <laughs> right. hanging out there, learning how to be a lover. But yes. um, so but a lot of people's experiences have to do with them trying to make you eat. Like ah, eating with okay. eating with the Fae and, and the paranormal experience. So it's there's food associations with the paranormal and there's smell associations. It's, it's funny is that I really originally was like thinking about the name of this and should we just call it Joshua Cutchin and Paranormal Smells? Like I, I didn't know we wanted that title because <laughs> people would be like Paranormal Smells, disgusting. So we tried to make it a little less like because when you think of a paranormal smell, well. Right. Yeah, it's not pleasant, probably. No. And you think of me on Saturday morning after the party. Oh, and <laughs> It smelled paranormally bad. And, uh, or you think of Ludo from uh, Labyrinth. Right. The bog of eternal stench. Smell bad. <laughs> and, uh, and, and that kind of thing. But uh, Josh Cutchin is a fascinating guy, a UW alumni, and we're proud to have him. Let's talk to him. And this is an exciting moment for See You on the Other Side podcast because it's always a sincere pleasure to bring on another University of Wisconsin alumni. Yay! Uh, and uh, number one, Allison from Milwaukee Hi, everybody. Ghosts, my lovely sister, is joining us today. And we are welcoming a, uh, a fellow Fortean who's got two books out, uh, The Trojan Feast and The Brimstone Deceit. We'd like to welcome Joshua Cutchin to see you on the other side. Hi, Josh. Hi, it's a wonderful pleasure to be here. Like you said, with some uh, fellow, some fellow alumni from UW. Um, <laughs> it, uh, that, that that part of the country holds a special place in my heart. And we're glad to have you. And so you're, um, you, are you in Georgia right now? Or are you in North Carolina? I am in Roswell, Georgia. Of Roswell, all places. Georgia. <laughs> yeah, there's a Roswell, Georgia, uh, and, and I just so happened to wind up here. It was one of those things where I was like, "Of course, I'm here in Roswell, Georgia. Of course." <laughs> that's that's, that's the, the way these things ever. work. Yep, yep. You know what's pretty funny about Roswell, Georgia is for some reason, my IP address. I have a charter IP address from home, mm-hmm. and so for some reason, the charter IP address always identifies as Roswell, Georgia. Really. 
Do you guys even have charter out there? Uh, yeah, yeah, we do, we do actually. Um, okay, but that's yeah, that's interesting. Um, so it always says it's like your location. It'll give me like like sometimes when Google will give you like local things, right? It'll be like a pizza place in Roswell, Georgia, and I'm like, I don't think, I don't think they'll get it there. There's no way they will get here in a half an hour or less. Connection there, we don't know about Mike. Like, I I left my heart in Roswell, Georgia. (laughs) I left my flying saucer in Roswell, Georgia. Well, I I would, you know, you you wouldn't believe it, but the actual the Roswell High School marching band show this year um, was an alien abduction themed show. So I. What? I, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was just like, of course, the year that I move out here, they do that. Um, oh, that's so fantastic. I. Uh, so is I. Is it an honor of you? No, no, not quite, not quite. It just, it just, no, it just happened. I mean, these these sort of things end up happening if you spend enough time in the in this, this sort of field. And uh, so I, so I grabbed two T-shirts and I sent one to uh, my good friend Greg Bishop and another one to my good friend Red Pill Junkie um, as sort of a thank you and you know, sort of a, a very unique. Uh, gift from 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 my area. So there's there's a Roswell High School marching band T-shirts floating around somewhere in Mexico City right now. Oh, that's fun. <laughs> well, well, which instrument did they use for the anal probe? Oh God! Oh, Mike! <laughs> Come on, you know it was a flute. <laughs> the, the flute or an oboe? Yeah. I, I hope it. You know, I hope they didn't try. It. Well, you are a tubist as well. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. So you are you are Ortian author. So you work in music education too? Yeah, so I, I, I uh, take uh, gigs and I play uh, mostly uh, jazz and rock uh, tuba. So such things do exist. Um, I just yes, started, just got invited to be part of a, a tuba quartet that's made up of uh, three other freelancers in the area. Um, but yeah, the lion's share of what I do uh, is is education-based. So it's doing clinics at schools and it's uh, teaching private sure. lessons as well. No, that's awesome. And um, Allison's in education. Uh, my wife was a... a Music educator for a while. And the guitar player in our band is a fellow tubist and music educator from the UW Wisconsin. So it's 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 part of the group here. That's great. Yeah, it's 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 one big happy family. <laughs> That's right. So you know, uh, it, it's fun to talk about. Uh, you know, when when you think like, oh yeah, we can have alien abduction, uh, marching band stuff, and. You know, I think about 20 years ago, 25 years ago, there is no way we would have had an alien abduction marching band thing in my high school. And I wasn't in the marching band, so I can't tell you, but there was no way. It just would have been like, what? You guys are crazy. And almost this like this mainstreaming of the weird and you have aliens and ghosts and, and the whole thing. So how did a guy like you get into uh, Fortiana and weird stuff in the first place? Well, you know, it's fascinating to me because... I constantly hear about, you know, these sort of subjects being downplayed um, and, you know, being sort of uh, undervalued by a lot of people. Uh, and to me, it never, I never put that together. Like it's, it never really um, resonated with me in any way because my parents were always very open. Um, I don't think they necessarily believed in any of these things, you know, with a capital B, but uh, they were, you know, they were open to, open to it being interesting, you know? Um, so it was it was it was completely you know acceptable for me to bring home books on all sorts of Fortiana, um, especially uh, cryptozoology. My dad was sort mm. of a sort of an, a sort of a a fan of cryptozoology, armchair fan of cryptozoology, as it were. Nice. Um, so yeah, I've always had an interest in these things, and it wasn't until uh, about well, geez, probably four years ago now, um, I really experienced a renaissance. Uh, of these sort of these sort of interests of mine, uh, specifically, I, I had some some time around. I was working at the University of Georgia, and um, around the holidays, I had a lot of free time um, 
in terms of like my workload, it just dropped off dramatically. So to try to keep myself from going bonkers, I discovered the, uh, the world of paranormal podcasting. Um, ah. Mysterious Universe was a, sort of my it's a very fun look. <laughs> yeah, no, it's 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 been a it's yeah, it's, it's 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 been a, a it's it, it's such a vibrant scene, you know. Um, I think that in terms of podcasts about subjects, the paranormal podcast scene is like one of the, one of the most you know uh, robust and thriving sort of niches out there, and I think it's because it gives you know these it gives these. <laughs> these fellow crazy outcasts that we, you know, that, that I consider mm-hmm. friends, it gives us a really way, really good way to connect. So uh, I sort of discovered a uh, mysterious universe was my, um, my gateway drug back into this entire subject. And from there it just kept on, uh, spiraling out of control. And I, you know, I, I ended up getting, uh, the idea to actually become involved and, you know, uh, permanently sully my name with, <laughs> with being an author on right. these subjects. Um, like, a, like is, you are now a professional crazy person. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. It's, it's, like oh, I used to be an amateur, but now I got my own book. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, you know, when, when when the going gets tough, the tough get woo, as I as I like to think about it. Um, yeah, but uh, so yeah, I, I had gotten a uh, like a Barnes and Noble gift card, and I was like, I'm gonna get me a Bigfoot book. I haven't read a Bigfoot book in forever. And I picked up uh, J. Robert Alley's Raincoast Sasquatch, which is a great book about uh, about Bigfoot sightings all along the Alaskan coast. And in it, uh, they mentioned uh, Alley mentions that certain First Nations lore held that if you were to take food from the woodman, the bookwas, in certain certain tribes, according to their mythology, that you would be trapped with them forever and stick with them forever. And that's one of those things where I've 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 been so interested for so long in the Magonian aspect of you know alien abduction. I, I think that there's I think that there is more truth in the idea that these phenomena are somehow related to the fairy folk legends of old. I think there's more truth to that than there is to the extraterrestrial hypothesis. Yeah, there's a word there I don't understand. Magonian. Well, yeah. So so for people that that don't understand that, uh, Josh, can you talk about you know. Jack Vallee and his connection and passport to Magonia. I think that's where you're going with that, right? Yeah, I, I would love to. So Magonia, um, Magonia is a place? Uh, well, Magonia was supposedly the realm in the sky from which wizards would launch um, basically dirigibles in in the uh, in 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 medieval France. Um, certain times, whenever like, a like Hogwarts in space, yeah, yeah basically. <laughs> no, no, Hogwarts, Hogwarts, in Hogwarts in the clouds, cloud, cloud Hogwarts. Hogwarts, okay. Hogwarts in the clouds because it was in France and it had smelly cheese. Yeah, so um, so Jacques Vallée was um, one to point out that not only do these um, these narratives of Magonia share a lot with what we would consider the modern day abduction scenario, but in his seminal work Passport to Magonia. Um, he pointed out that there is a strong through line between uh, fairy folk uh, legends and modern alien abduction tales. Um, you know, if you look at, I mean, the, the list is the list is pretty startling when you look at it on its face. I mean, you have uh, strange light phenomena associated with both. You have um, 
the the altering of time. You know, people would go into Fairyland and be think they were there for five minutes and they were there for five years, or they would think they were there for five years and they were really there for five minutes. Well, we see this you know reflected in modern abduction lore about you know missing time that people have. Um, fairies would steal babies and replace them with changelings, yeah. just like you know in in the modern abduction motifs you'll hear about missing fetuses and that sort of thing. Yeah, um, phantom. Oh, absolutely. That- yeah, they did the whole pregnancy where they're they're pregnant for a little while and then they're not, and it's the, the alien hi- the alien human hybrid babies who are going to be the gateway into how aliens get into our society because <laughs> if they're half human, if they're half human, you can't hate them, you know, like you can hate an alien species, but if it's like, well, it's half human, then it's it's one of us kind of. Which I was just gonna say that's how we wind up with narratives that all the politicians are somehow reptilians because then we can feel bad about thinking that they're subhuman. Yeah, <laughs> um, right. So, I mean, and, and the list just continues on and on about these similarities between fairy, between fairy uh, tales, fairy stories, and alien stories. Well, let's do a quick, let's do a sure. quick thing about some fairy stories, I think. Because a lot of people, when they think of fairies, they just think of, like, the tiny creatures, like, the, they might think of the brownies from the movie Willow. Mm-hmm. Right. Or, <laughs> or, like, uh, you know, Kevin more, more, of, more of the Disney part. depiction of fairies as sweet little sprites. Yeah, Tinkerbell stuff, yeah. Right. Yeah. right. Tinkerbell shows up. But it all comes from, you think of those pictures that, uh, the guy that wrote Sherlock Holmes, Sir, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, he, he's yeah. like, oh, the Cottingley fairies? Yeah, the Cottingley, yeah. yeah, the Cottingley photographs. Mm-hmm. Right, so we always picture these little people wearing swimsuits and have wings and they little magic wand and bing, you know, you're a real boy. So those kind of particular things. The fairies are a lot darker than that, aren't they? Yes, and more intriguing, I think. Yeah, I mean, the, the way that, the way, the sort of gateway that I've found to help people get their, wrap their mind around it is imagine ghosts that were never living people. And, you know, these spirits being tied to certain, uh, certain landscape features in a very animistic sense. Um, so you're talking like elementals. Yeah, earth elementals, basically. Um, of some sort of variety. You know, I'm, I, I am a Christian myself. Uh, the, common, uh, the common Christian solution for writing off these earth elementals were that somehow they were, um, you know, they were either the... Angels that got shut out of heaven, you know, when the, the, during the war in heaven, or they were the angels that were too uh, good for hell and too bad for heaven, um, and then they fell to the ground, they fell to the earth, and that's how they got associated with certain locations. I don't necessarily feel if if there is an objective truth to this, I don't necessarily feel like that's happening. I my my personal cosmology is broad enough to encompass the notion that there might be. Uh, entities in between. You know, I, I'm, I'm always very critical of Christianity because they say the Lord works in mysterious ways, except for mysterious things which don't exist. And I always have a right. real problem with that. I always have a real problem with that. So the idea of, I mean, an elemental is that it's a uh, a personification, a nature spirit. It's a personification of the earth itself. But, right. you know, the interesting thing about that is, you know, how would a nature spirit manifest itself? Like we, when we think about a, what a person is, well, part of what makes us human is the, the the two eyes, the two arms, the ears, the hands, the feet, the you know the, the physicality of us is part of what defines who we are. So, what are some of the different forms that maybe fairies can take or nature spirits can take? Because if we think of like we are we are uh, I mean defined by our physicality, but we're also limited by our physicality. So, what what do we think the kind of forms that a nature spirit could take? A fae. Well, if you look at sort of the the existing literature because basically what happened is you get get into the Elizabethan era era and uh 
the whole notion of fairy folk becomes completely co-opted um, to represent this sort of uh, sweetness and light, basically Tinkerbell uh, image that we have. Generally speaking, okay. the, the, the fae folk were considered short, um, which is you know an interesting parallel, again, to modern alien abduction, where you often have short entities. Um, but having said that, they could really come in all shapes and sizes. You find uh, certain Scandinavian tales of... Um, Elf maidens who are human sized and basically, you know, uh, uh, indistinguishable from people. Um, you know, one of my one of my favorite uh, fae folk um, is the uh, the Celtic woodwose, who is a tall creature covered in hair, which sounds exactly like Sasquatch. Absolutely, and it's, and it's interesting. Well, you like Bigfoot or a dude in a death metal band. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Or my uncle. Um, <laughs> right. So, and and you know, it's it's interesting because not only are there there these fairy um, these fairy alien connections, but you got that woodwos thing. Well, if you look at like some of the behavior that people attribute to Sasquatch in North America, the uh, gifting of certain foods, the braiding of horses' manes is something that some people claim Sasquatch does. These are all oh, wow. these are all one hundred percent down the pipe traditional um fairy actions so uh, that's why I, I tend to try to i've, I've been trying to uh, adopt this term that i heard from uh, one of my favorite thinkers on the subject gordon white has been t- using this term magonian to describe that sort of weird gray area where it's it doesn't feel like it's flesh and blood extraterrestrials or flesh and blood bigfoot there's something weirder going on and i contend that there's something weirder going on in all these phenomena in general but that sort of magonian right. term is a broader term i like it better than 14 because people say you mean 14 you're like no i don't mean 14 i mean 14 <laughs> so so I, I, i've been sort of using 14, I, i've been sort of using that magonian term because also it's a, it's a nice signifier if someone you know recognizes the work of of, of jacques valet um so yeah i i contend that all these subjects um, have similar, including ghosts, all of them at the very least are using similar methods to accomplish what they're accomplishing. They're, they're all, they're all sort of touching on, um, they're all touching on a similar, uh, set of actions, a similar set of themes. And I think that we underestimate how much of a role we play in creating these experiences. as Well, uh, my good friend, Greg Bishop has talked at length about the idea that we somehow engage in an act of co-creation, not that these things are necessarily in our minds, but there, there is an objective intelligence that we don't know how to interpret. And we use what we bring to the dance, so to speak, to help us flesh out and to help us understand this very alien in the traditional word sense, this very alien inter- interaction that we have. Well, you know, the commonalities between the fairy lore in Europe and the fairy lore in of uh, the U.S. among the native peoples is just startling. So you know, your uh, the way you you went into talking to about this ha- has also intrigued me to um, see all these these similarities between native lore and European lore. You you got to wonder what's going on there. Well, you know, it's it's like that that great quote from Goldfinger: "Once is." Uh, what is it? Once as happenstance, twice as coincidence, and three times as enemy action. I mean, it's it it really right. does it really does push my personal threshold of credulity to assume that these are all. I mean, look, I think that there's something to be said for universal human archetypes, um, but some of the specifics are so specific, like this obsession with our reproduction, um, and you know, the subject of a Trojan feast, this general food taboo that you will find in every culture across the globe. It just, it's, it's a little bit too startling to suggest to me that there isn't something very objective and very clear happening, you know, within these, within these stories as well. 
so talk about that a little bit. The the you know whole idea uh, that if you interact with fairies and they offer you food and drink, you know, don't take it. <laughs> Can you give <laughs> us a few stories? Can you give us a few stories that that illustrate that, either from native lore or European or both? And that's interesting. Real quick, I was going to jump in two things that relate to that exact question coming from the world of pop culture where where, that's where I can bring my knowledge here. Um, (laughs) Number one, if you guys have read uh, great Wisconsin author, Patrick Rothfuss's series, the the Kavotha King Killer Chronicles. I am not familiar with Uh, that at all, but I've been in the market for a new, uh, is it, it's fiction I've taken, been in the market for some new fiction. So I would love to, I'd love to check into that. Yeah. The, the first book of it, um, it really is something exceptional and he's only, he's on the second book right now at the, the wise man's fear and the name of the name of the wind is the original book, but he's a literature professor at uh, UW Stevens point. And it's just, the, these books have taken off and it's, it's really fantastic fantasy. But in the second book, there's an entire, like what I feel like this is a way too long of a section, but it's like a hundred pages that he spends with the queen of the fairies. And part of it nice. is like, you, you can't accept, you know, th- those gifts and things like that. And the second example is from, uh, I don't know if you guys watched The Walking Dead at all. I, I, I did a long time ago when I sort of fell out. So sure. <laughs> I, 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 uh, I got the, my uh, aversion to, to zombies, which you know well, Mike. Understood, yes. Everything understood else, paranormal, not zombies. I've had to embrace my fear of zombies. <laughs> yes. Um, and, and so I do. But You've the, taken the other path. I understand. There, there was two episodes, two episodes ago, The Walking Dead. It was really funny because it was a character who had come to visit a new, a new place called the Kingdom, and in this new place, they keep offering her like a pomegranate. Oh, yeah, oh. loaded with meaning, loaded. Yeah. With meaning. And eventually, at the end, she eats the pomegranate, and that's the whole idea of you know the daughter of Demeter. Uh, Persephone, right? She's trapped in the underworld right. and the only thing she eats are those six pomegranate seeds when she's there and because of those six seeds, that's why we have winter. Yeah, the yes, six months. exactly. And then that, that's what anthropologists will cite as the reason that it's a universal myth is because it came from this Greek myth of Demeter. And like I'm sitting there watch, walking dead, I'm like, how many people are thinking about this gosh darn pomegranate, right? And, and, and so, <laughs> so what nuts. happened that's to awesome. her when she ate the pomegranate? Well, we haven't gone back to that location yet, so I oh, think we don't know. in a couple we, episodes we'll find out. We don't know um, how she's going to pay for it. <laughs> that's that's exactly. super fascinating. Well, yes. Yeah, so for me, for me, like I w- I've been interested, like I said, in these these fairy alien Bigfoot crossovers, and I knew that people during alien abductions had been offered food. But when I saw that Sasquatch thing is in there as well, mm. that thing, the idea that, you know, if you accepted food from Bigfoot, you'd be, you know, trapped with Bigfoot forever. I'm like, okay, there's definitely a book in this. You know, should I go <laughs> ahead and write it? <laughs> and on completely, you know, completely on spec, I just started, you know, writing away. And um, it's 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 really interesting because there is this this commonly held belief um, that if you eat food with the other, you will be. Uh, you'll be taken and forced to stay with the other. Um, which, again, like I mentioned, like you, you said with Demeter, um, supposedly this is all, all world beliefs are, you know, derived from that, that, uh, that ancient Greek myth, which is, which is fine. Like I'm, I'm, I'm a, I'm a proponent of diffusionism. I think that it's almost an open and shut case that there was some sort of more advanced uh, civilization on Earth at some point that had a much more global society than we think. But at the same time, like that's that's a really specific motif, and it it doesn't it 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 doesn't make sense 
to me, I mean, maybe there's another, maybe there's another answer that isn't that something objective is happening to these people. Maybe it really was a diffusion, but I don't think it's a diffusionism of the of the the Demeter myth because if you look at this this particular food taboo, you'll find it in New Zealand, you'll find it in um, you know Europe, you'll find it in Mesopotamia, you'll find it um, obviously you know in Greece as we mentioned, you'll find it in South America, you'll find it uh, in North America. So it, it 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 seems to be a very common consistent. Uh, folk belief held throughout literally the entire world. Right, and it's so pervasive. New Zealand's like the oldest civilization around, isn't it? Uh, it's it's the, the 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 Maori civilization is definitely pretty is definitely one of the older ones. I think perhaps the Aborigines might might be uh might might uh, go a little bit deeper have a couple in decades the on them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, just a couple. Um, but yeah, it's you know it's interesting. I, I feel like people in the West don't really even think about Maori culture that much, but it's 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 really uh, vibrant and robust and insightful uh, culture in and of itself. Well, New Zealand's becoming more popular when they shoot in all the shows there because they've got you know they the Lord of the Rings and they they're even shooting uh, Ash versus Evil Dead, the um, new Sam Raimi TV show is being shot in New Zealand with with Lucy Lawless. I didn't know that that's where they were shooting it. That makes a lot of sense though. Nice, yeah. Well, so, and so, so I, I think that more people are going, uh, more people are visiting there too, and discovering more about that country. Mm-hmm. So, Josh, do you have um, some specific stories uh, that you can share about fairy food or other stories? You know that maybe appeared in one culture, and then you see, you know, another similarity uh, in another culture. Yeah, no, I'd 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 love to rant about this for <laughs> for a while. So, yeah, so you shouldn't you shouldn't accept food from the faithful is the idea. But at the same time, like to re- to reject it is also a bad idea. Um, I found some stories where people were approached by a banshee and you know an old dusty uh, lane in the British Isles and were offered buttermilk and turned it down. Were actually blinded. So you're sort of damned if you do and damned if you don't. Um, huh. the, the the best the best mo- the best uh, not motive but the best uh, method for avoiding this seems to be to employ deception deliberately. Um, one of the more famous examples that you find of this is a story called Jimmy Doyle in the in the Fairy Palace which is um which was recorded in a book uh, called Legendary Fictions of the Irish Celts where there's this uh, uh drunken guy stumbling home one night and he sees a fairy castle on his way home and he actually uh he actually goes into um the the fairy uh the fairy castle and there's this giant party and they actually give him some food uh, and give him some something to drink, and he actually, instead of drinking, he uh, he pours it between his waistcoat and his shirt because he's told by someone he sees there, who is dead. There's this odd inter- there's this odd relationship between fairy folk and the dead, where they tend to see be seen commingling at these at these gatherings. And he sees this person, and she says, "Whatever you do, don't drink, or you'll never return home again." And that's why he pours it, you know. Right, and that's asking a lot because he's like, sure. he's coming home on a night and he sees a party, <laughs> gets invited to the party, they give him some right. free booze, and he pours it in his waistcoat instead of drinking it. Th- this Jimmy Doyle's really got his head on the right way. Yeah, he did. Yeah, it's it's not not fair. Like, I know if I'm like, you know, eight or 12 drinks in and I stumble onto another party, I'm going to have trouble saying no, no to that. Hey, sorry guys, but this zombie told me I couldn't finish his beer. <laughs> yeah, basically, yeah. So that's that's one of the more popular stories that you'll see, and there are a lot of variations on this. Another another one that's a favorite of mine is um, the fairy dwelling on Selina Moor. There was a gentleman who was on his way uh, to a tavern 
one evening, and he actually found himself in a part of the countryside that I didn't realize. This is another Irish tale. And he stumbles upon basically this this house where there are all these fey folk um, dancing around and having a party. And there's a taller woman who's supervising all the smaller fey folk. And she says, stay here, let me get you some ale. And as she goes away to fetch him some ale, this uh, other woman comes up and grabs the gentleman and pulls him you know, to the side, around the side of the house, and starts talking to him. And says, whatever you do, don't drink any of this, this ale that she's going to give you. Because I was at one point in this orchard that we're in right now. And I had taken a plum and I'd eaten the plum and that's why I'm, I've stayed here. And at this point, the gentleman realizes that this was the, uh, this was a woman that he had once loved that he had assumed had, he had, he had assumed had died. She actually, um, she never came back from this and the fairies had, had, uh, given them a, a, a changeling, a shell that they actually ended up burying. And she said, whatever you do, don't eat any other food. Their food is not real. It's nothing but, uh, but you know, detritus. She says they're not even Christians; they're star worshippers. Whatever you do, don't, don't ever uh, eat their food. So what he does is they're star worshippers. Fairy- oh yeah, oh no, we're gonna we're gonna unpack that here in a moment. In yes, a moment. Please, um, yeah, I was but, gonna uh, say so that was, it was drop that bomb. Yeah, no, it's 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 great. Uh, so he he there's a there's a fairy. Uh, there, there's a lead, there's a, a a method supposedly at that time in Ireland that you'll hear about sometimes is that by inverting some of your clothing, you're sort of turning the world upside down, and so that will actually break a fairy spell. So he actually tries he actually takes his gloves off and turns them inside out, and the next thing he knows, he wakes up inside of a barn. So it didn't work to save his his long lost love. But the motifs in that resonate so strongly with modern abduction lore. First, the first thing is that you have this taller supervising entity um, that is sort of uh, governing the actions of these smaller entities. You find this in alien abduction accounts all the time, where mm-hmm. there are shorter gray aliens that are supervised by a taller gray alien. So that's the first thing. You have this food component, which still does occur in a lot of abduction stories, which we can get into later. You have this star worshiper, you know, <laughs> this, this this star worshiper thought bomb, which is like <laughs> a great revelation. Um, mm-hmm. But what's interesting to me, too, and I actually didn't mention this in the book, but I, I thought of it later, is the act of inverting clothing to escape the realm of the other you find in modern abduction accounts too, right? Because you'll find people who claim to be abductees who will wake up and say, my pajamas were on inside out. And, you know, if we assume like an extraterrestrial hypothesis, a very nuts and bolts thing, we're like, Oh, well the aliens must've put their clothing on wrong side out, but it's interesting. They're not going to check for the tag, the tag. Yeah, exactly. But it's interesting to me that that still resonates with this older lore in terms of, you know, the, the experience ends and their clothes are inside out. So I I think that, uh, that's one of the more powerful stories and really, really illustrating these connections that we've talked about. Um, in terms of, in terms of the role of food and drink in modern alien lore, um, you can pretty much, uh, divide it up into two main categories in, uh, into two main categories in the literature. So you've got the contactees, which we normally associate with the fifties. We normally associate with more human like entities in those experiences. It is, um, it's always voluntary. It's always a very pleasant food, um, that people are given and it's always consumed, uh, like I said, voluntary, pleasant and, uh, and it's just a, generally a, a very positive experience, just like, and again, just like the contactee experience is usually voluntary and pleasant. A lot of these space brothers had certain messages about peace. In the more modern era, you see the, you know, the abduction, the abduction experience take over and the motifs of that. The abduction experience in and of itself is involuntary and it's forced. It's under duress. 
And similarly, the the food you know the, the food profile matches up with that as well because these these foods are usually consumed under duress or force fed, and they're usually unpleasant, and they're usually you know just a, a generally nasty experience all around. Um, it's interesting that a lot of times in modern abduction accounts, you find uh, liquids being administered. Um, in my 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 own survey, which is the first survey of its type done on this, um, I found that by a, at least a 60% majority of the cases included drink instead of food and drink. It was mostly a liquid of some sort that was given to the to the, uh, to the the experiencer. What was your methodology when you did a survey like trying to find out the food and drink involved in alien abduction reports? Well, yeah, no, it's, it's a huge data set to wrap your arms around. And there's so much in like mm-hmm. little corners of... Uh, of the literature where this sort of thing is mentioned. Um, the, the best place, the, the lion's share of my research began, no, this wasn't the, the, the be all and end all, but it began with Albert Rosales's humanoid index, which at that point was still online. Um, Albert has compiled a list of cases, uh, mostly from the 20th century, but stretching back all the way into the 1700s of tens of thousands of cases. Um, the, the high profile cases that you hear about the low profile cases, like it's, he's got, pretty much everything in there. Um, unfortunately, he's taken them offline and has actually begun publishing them. You know, good for him. Do what you need to, Albert. But in terms of a loss for the community, it's it's a big loss in terms of just having that sort of a, as, as, a, as a resource for us all. Um, but that was a good place to start. So basically what happens in, you know, I... <laughs> If you're listening, Albert, I'm just being completely honest here. Um, you find these accounts in his index, and they're not always sourced impeccably. So sometimes you have to um, do a little bit of digging on your own because I wasn't. I'm not gonna. I'm not about to cite just that as a re- as, as as a source. I mean, I I do every now and then, but I'd like to come go back to the original source of where he found it. Um, so some of it's from like you know the the. Uh, the research files of certain uh, certain investigators, and in that case, that's where I do cite those uh, directly from Albert's compilation. But if I can, mm-hmm. I always tra- I always traced it back to its source, be it you know in a MUFON journal uh, publication or in an actual book itself. Um, and so that's so if, if, if it's the closest thing that we as a community have to a humanoid database that is literally like the be all end all and there's some some, some stuff there's quite a bit of stuff in, in both my books that aren't you know part of albert's uh part part of albert's collection as well so but that that sort of was the meat and potatoes of the methodology for going through this cool well I, i'm gonna have to check out that index yeah it's, it's it's fantastic and joshua what drew you to you know look at such specific details. I mean, could you talk a little bit about how, what that might reveal? Uh, you know, so looking at small details maybe could reveal something much greater than, than we've seen. Well, it's just, it, to me, it's, I mean, I'm, I have a, a good deal of friends in the ufological community. And, uh, but at the same time, I'm very critical of a lot of the things that you read and see, because, in this mad rush to prove that aliens are visiting us from Zeta Reticuli or Zebel Ganubi or whatever, um, we've we've sort of tried to take shortcuts, and time and again they have, you know, resulted in us getting getting slapped on the wrist and our you know going home with our tail between our legs. Um, to mix <laughs> to mix metaphors, we haven't really taken the time to look at these from the simplest components and then sort of build out from there. We want to jump right to solving the big questions. Are there aliens visiting us? Is there a giant, tall, hairy hominid running around North America? And I would contend that those are not as 
those particular avenues of research are not as rewarding as really dialing it back and taking a look at the basic stuff. Um, my latest book is is Brimstone Deceit, which is looking at, uh, is which is looking at the smells that people see in these encounters. I am, I am at least a little bit ashamed that it's taken until 2016 to have this book written. <laughs> like, it seems like that will be one of the first things that you do. Like, what can we learn from these small details? So, the the phrase that I often like to employ is um, is that we're not seeing the trees for the forest. We're trying to see the big picture and we're not taking a look at the little things because in these little things, we might actually gain extra insight. Um, I realize right now that what I'm saying probably sounds like I'm being high and and mighty. I mean, like, you know, this is again, like they're, they're, they're better. I I almost wanted to, to write about these subjects just to create a dialogue in the community about, you know, taking seriously, taking a look at this. Like let's, let's include, for example, let's include smell in all of our, you know, uh, sighting, citing databases and all of our interview questionnaires, you know, let's, let's really look at the fact of whether or not somebody was given food or drink in these sort of, you know, um, liminal experiences. Let's, 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 let's really take the time to, to investigate every Avenue before we try to solve these larger questions, because these smaller details might lead us to a solution for the larger questions in a more, um, in, in an easier and more relaxed way, if you will. Well, and we explore the world through our five senses. It, it just makes sense that that we should use all of them. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I totally agree. Um, I, I had played around a little bit. Some people are have been talking. They're like, "Is Josh going to do a do do a like a smell like a, like a sense trilogy or something?" Because I've done taste basically, and I've done smell. Um, but I don't really want to write a Trojan Touch. That sounds a little bit uh, <laughs> sounds a little bit sketchy. <laughs> Um, no, I, I don't know. I don't know how it's much. You're a big seller, Josh. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> but I'm like interested in you know because I, I love a, a Trojan feast and and then you know this newest book is it, just fascinating to me because the sense of smell ha- is really important uh, and and is often overlooked. I think. Oh yeah, we take we take a lot of this stuff for granted. Um, you know, I think that's. Both a Trojan Feast and the Brimstone Deceit are are full length books on something that might might have gotten a chapter in another book, um, and I think that that is because I mean, like for example, with smell, um, which is what the uh, the Brimstone Deceit is all about. Um, it really is. We have a complicated relationship with smell. Um, while a lot of people, a lot of philosophers, have held that it's sort of a base animalistic sense, uh, at the same time, we, in an individual basis, really put a lot of weight on it because it does seem to um, suggest some sort of objective reality. I mean, you know, <laughs> I if if I see a hologram of a uh, plate of lasagna projected onto my table. Like I'm not going to believe it unless I can smell it. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to believe it unless I can get that, you know, wonderful smell. Um, it's the same reason that people don't like having artificial Christmas trees. I mean, you know, they're always wanting to capture that smell. So it feels, you know, it feels real. So you think like smell confers, you know, some type of authenticity. It does. It does. And what's interesting is that, um, is that if there is any sort of control exercise by the entities in these encounters, which I think we have to a, to a certain degree assume that it does because of the way that they're able to evade, um, you know, hard evidence 
being captured of their existence, whether it be Sasquatch or ghosts or aliens or something. They seem to be in control of the situation. If they are in control of the situation to the extent that they can actually control what they smell like, they make poor choices <laughs> in terms of in terms of not wanting to be um, not wanting to be noticed because a lot of the, th- the things that these entities smell like are we are very sensitive to as a species. Um, one of the more common smells that you run into is uh, hydrogen sulfide. Um, so um, it. Uh, it it's 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 one of those. So the, the book is called the Brimstone Deceit. I've, I've I've gone back and forth about it because it sounds like it sounds a lot like a sort of a Christian apologetics book or something. <laughs> I am a Christian. This is just me piecing together these pieces. Um, sorry, yeah, well, well, maybe there's there's some influence there of Christianity on our perceptions of these phenomena. Yeah, that th- that really is part of the part of the question. Like I I I suspect that. Well, this is sort of a, a a deeper topic for us to get into, but I suspect that that's all right, man. Let's go deep. <laughs> I, I, I suspect that the smell of the smell of sulfur in a lot of these encounters is sort of like a self reinforcing meme, if you were. Um, I'm not sure that it means that aliens are demonic. I think that it has led to aliens being interpreted as being demonic, or you know, Bigfoot being interpreted as being demonic. I was on Coast to Coast two weeks ago. I was watching the chat room and somebody said, this guy is right because these are all fallen angels. They're demons and they all smell like sulfur. And I'm like, that's not at all what I said. I never, I literally, I literally never said anything like that. I went out of my way to say otherwise. Um, but you do run into this, this smell of sulfur with these entities. And it's funny because sulfur in its pure form actually does not smell. So people are usually smelling some sort of sulfur compound, usually uh, sulfur dioxide or hydrogen sulfide. Um, getting back to the idea of these entities being in control of the way that they smell, if they are, um, they've made a very poor choice because we are sensitive to sulfur compounds to an extreme degree. Um, if you take a look at hydrogen sulfide, which is that rotten egg odor, um, it's it's it occurs wherever... Um, organic material decomposes in the absence of, of oxygen. So rotten eggs, swamps, um, you know, septic tanks, that sort of smell. My bedroom, my bedroom, <laughs> my gut. It's, it's yeah, people, people joke about methane, but methane is actually, uh, is actually non odiferous. It's one of the primary, uh, odiferous component. I mean, there are many, but the primary odiferous component in flatus to be polite, um, <laughs> is, is hydrogen sulfide. And we are sensitive to, to hydrogen sulfide, uh, to the point of, 0.5 parts per billion. Now, to put some to put some that in perspective. If you've ever seen these big uh, semi trucks that have a a big tank on the back hauling milk or water or whatever, mm-hmm. if you were to take an ink dropper and drop one drop of ink into that that solution, that would be twice the concentration at which we can smell hydrogen sulfide. It's my, it's, a my, it's a mind bogglingly. Uh, uh, our sensitive to it is, is mind boggling. Why so, are we so sensitive to yeah, it? Yeah, I mean, why, yeah, it, why? It's because, like, so we don't eat so many beans or what? Well, well, being, I mean, so, um, if there isn't a universally reviled smell, um, if there is, hydrogen sulfide, sulfur would sort of be the closest thing that we have. Um, because it is a primary uh, com- compound that's released during decomposition. It's not the only one. There are p- cadaverine and putrescine, and, but but a lot of a lot of the decomposition smells that we associate are are sulfur compounds. So um, there's a hedonic association between 
um, between that smell and just being unclean. So, you know, it's, again, we, we, we tend to de-emphasize the importance of smell in our lives, but without smell, you'd probably eat that, uh, that, you know, that turkey leg that's been sitting in the fridge for too long or something, you know? Um, so it's, it, it really is, it ties into us, it t- ties into it being a, a warning mechanism, really. It lets us know that we're about to eat something or to not ingest something potentially harmful to our bodies. Yes, because as, as as mammals, we 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 tend to prefer to be in environments that are not hazardous to our health. And being amongst filth, being amongst decomposition and decay, is generally speaking hazardous to mammalian health. Unless we're looking for mushrooms, like Allison loves. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> all right. So I I love mushrooms. I, I have a, a love affair with with wild mushrooms that started this year that everybody knows about because I post about them endlessly on my Facebook. Um, (laughs) But um, I was really, really intrigued uh, when um, in in the Broomstone Deceit, you started talking about the Fae, because let me just admit it, I'm a big fan of the Fae. But that the whole idea that, you know, they might smell like mushrooms really struck me. Yeah, so you find these connective motifs, and it's really interesting. Um, I don't know, uh, Allison, have you listened to a lot of uh, Terrence McKenna's lectures? Well, I I am familiar with Terrence McKenna and and just psychedelica in general. Yeah, speaking about a guy that loves mushrooms, that's Terrence McKenna. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, Yeah, so I I, I, I was actually thinking about this the other day. Like, I, I would encourage anybody who's interested in these subjects and the way that they interface with perception and whatnot to, like, go his all his lectures are online go go listen to them because the guy was a, a very unique thinker and um had some very very cool ideas i mean he he cited the fact that um you know if you're going if you're going if you're looking for extraterrestrial life maybe we should start with looking at the mushroom which s- seems to have you know, psilocybin mushrooms seem to have some sort of intelligence behind them after they're consumed. I don't know if that's user error or what, but there, there, so, there seems to be, and, and, and not only that, but like mushrooms can survive in the, in the vacuum of space. There is right. not, there's not a more innocuous, helpful organism on the planet Earth than the mushroom, which is literally like springs out of decay. Yeah. So you're, you're talking about like the, the whole like concept of the plant teachers, right? That, that there's some kind of consciousness in these plants or, or in, you know, mushrooms specifically. Yes. Mm-hmm. So I, I haven't tried psychedelics myself for a lot of reasons. One of them is that, uh, one of them is that you have a job. <laughs> I have a job. <laughs> That's a big one. one. Them, and you want to keep the job. Yeah, and one of them is that, you know, I, I, they, they are illegal and I'm kind of, you know, kind of a goody two shoes for the most part. Um, and you know, another aspect to that is the fact that I, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not, entirely sure how well the experience would be for me from a from a health perspective i have some health considerations that i'm sort of wary sure. of um or, or I mean, what about the whole set and setting i mean what if you're not ready for it right it can be powerful life-changing exactly. in positive but also in negative ways right exactly. nobody's so, telling you for not taking mushrooms we're not like well, like we're <laughs> the opposite of the dare program but, but, but i talk about it so much that i feel like some people probably some people out there on the internet because people on the internet are critical in general they've probably there probably been some very critical things about me said um but i do think that there is something objectively intriguing about the idea that there are plant teachers the idea that certain spirits behind certain plant teachers get on a tear i mean if you want to look at i've talked with um 
again to drop his name Gordon White about this um, sometimes is is the idea that like Mother Ayahuasca is on a tear throughout civilization like she is on a mission because you look at the way that Ayahuasca is um, is being treated nowadays it's become it's kind of like people you go to the to the west coast and people on the street and know what ayahuasca is that's yeah weird. it's been mainstreamed it's so it's so weird um you know you don't find it you know in middle america and you don't really find it on the east coast that much but like it's, well, it's, a, it's a thing like i hear i hear, I hear, I hear <laughs> middle america and some of us still are <laughs> well yeah yeah fair enough um but like you don't like it's it's but like I've I've listened to to non paranormal podcasts where they mention ayahuasca and it's like that's that's a, that's strange. I don't think these people are necessarily using it in the right context. But at the same time, like it seems like there is some sort of driving force behind certain entheogens, certain uh, you know certain uh, ritualized um, plant teachers, as you mentioned, that seem to have something of a mission. And I would um, I would argue that. Um, like just it's 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 the whole altered states of consciousness thing like i think that we we it, we ignore the role that altered states of consciousness play in these magonian experiences at our own peril um because there are a lot of similarities a lot of the logic of these experiences tends to follow out that sort of um the same narratives that you would experience under the effect of certain drugs. That doesn't mean that it's not real. Some people, you know, this knee-jerk reaction. Remember the X-Files episode where they're both trapped in, like, that cave with the, um, with the fungus? Oh, the ancient fungus? Yeah, yeah, long, it's, <laughs> yeah. yeah from, from the dark recesses of my brain, that, that rings a bell. Right. Yeah. Well, they're both tra- and, they, and they go through this entire fantasy of, of the thing that, ha- you know, of, of an adventure that had happened to them when they're really trapped inside this fungus the entire time. Right. Yeah. And um, there's another modern uh, pop culture reference from 2015. Um, Joshua, did you see the movie The Hallow? Yes, you I know? did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So just getting back to the, the fairy, like, mush- mushroom connection, um, which is very evident in, in that movie, which I thought was pretty good. Um, oh, The Hallow is a great movie. Though. Those fairies that come after them, yeah. that ain't Tinkerbell, baby. That, I mean, they're really... That's right. <laughs> they're nasty. They're nasty. Yeah. I, 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 I like that movie. I, I, I would really love to see somebody do a... Uh, one of my favorite uh, current uh, depictions of fairy folk uh, is in uh, the Netflix series, or I think it's an Amazon series that came to Netflix, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell. Oh yes, um, I, I, I that was from the BBC. Yeah, yeah that 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 actually touches on some stuff that you don't see depicted in fairy folklore a lot. Um, that they, they basically he he has these parties with the dead every night as a, as a, you know as a, as a fairy, which is something that you never ever ever see in fairy folklore. So in in that sense, it has a certain authenticity to it. But yeah, it's it's really interesting to me that you have these certain. I mean, so for me personally. I have come to the conclusion that the um, transceiver model of consciousness is more is probably the right theory that we should be pursuing. Okay, unpack that a little bit. What do you mean about? <laughs> I'd, be, I, I'd be glad to. Um, yeah. yeah, please yeah. do. Um, so, a lot of modern materialist science would have you believe that mind equals brain. So that, like, if your 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 consciousness. Who who you guys are is an epiphenomena of brain activity. Um, epiphenomena refers to something that is more along the lines of like sand dunes aren't formed to be sand dunes. They arise out of wind patterns and sand, and they form in certain manners. So right. you are personality. Personality is like a side effect yes. of our brain doing work. Um, but if you have followed any sort of psi research in the past, you know, 
let's 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 be conservative and say the past you know fifteen years, it 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 becomes very apparent that um, psi phenomena is real. Um, such things as telepathy and precognition do exist in some sort of level. Some of us might be better at it than others, but like uh, this is this is one of those things that I I will I will entertain people who are skeptical of UFOs and Bigfoot and fairy folk and all these things all day. I get very weary very quick of people who say that there is nothing to psi phenomena because there are peer-reviewed articles that talk about these things in a very natural way. In addition to the fact that like we have this stuff happen in our lives all the time, you know. Um, so yeah, and we right. just kind of blow them off. Is is what I think. I we mean, do no, totally. There, there I, I agree with you. Yeah, so many things that happen, synchronicities and psychic connections, and I think you know, um, in our our modern society, we are are told to just you know brush those things away, and and I think of it as you know. Um, I'm very skeptical or, or I have been in the past. And, and I saw that just kind of like taking over my experience when, when it didn't necessarily always even fit. And, um, so now I see it differently. Uh, I'm seeing it as, uh, you know, this, this materialist approach as just one very narrow way of looking at the world and that there's many other ways that other cultures have brought to us. So when I, I think of, um, my experience now, I'm, I'm trying to focus on what I call a decolonization of belief. You know, the idea that, that you don't have to be ruled, um, you know, by, uh, by that dominant paradigm. Nice. But, but you can look at, at both sides. And, and then sometimes you, you uh, see something else and it surprises you. Like, um, let me just tell one quick thing. Sure. Um, All right. Because it's related, it's related to our mushroom conversation. So, <laughs> man, yeah, I'm sorry, but okay. So I've always been interested in this idea of foraging, and but I al- I've always been leery of foraging for mushrooms until this year, and then so I started to you know reach out and find out there were ways to get these wild mushrooms legal wild mushrooms. Let me just say, and uh, so I started exploring that, and. Um, in my life, uh, where I work, I, I work at a school, and so where I, where I travel every day from the building to the parking lot to get to my car, um, I had just learned about a certain mushroom called a giant puffball, which um, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it is giant and um, a big white thing. Blow your mind, man. If it's touch, it releases spores and sort of a puff. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. No? But it's a really okay, cool, big yeah. one, like soccer ball oh, God, size. Or, terrifying. Releases spores. That's like yes. the beginning of a Michael Crichton novel. <laughs> well, you got to get it before the spores come out. But anyway, right. then you can eat it. It's really good, actually. Um, but anyway, so I had just learned, uh, you know, I knew about little puffballs. Every kid knows about little puffballs because you shove them in somebody's face, right? And you blow all the spores all <laughs> out over them. We did that, right, Mike? Yeah, um, you did it to me. Yeah. And so, yes, because... <laughs> <laughs> I'm the big sister. I do. I did bad things. Let me yeah, just say that. Right. Um, but anyway, so um, on the way uh, to the parking lot one day, I see a, a white thing just off the kindergarten playground, and I'm like, could that could that actually be a puffball mushroom? Because I had just really learned about them the the week before, and I was like, what is this really? And so I went over, and at that time it was softball sized. And it was indeed a giant puffball mushroom. And then we were able to watch it, and it grew to humongous size. And 
so I, I've, I've been working at the same location for 10 years. I've never seen anything like that. And okay, I didn't know about giant puffballs, but I got to tell you, if there was uh, a giant puffball growing somewhere, I would have been like, hey, what is that? And checked it out. So to me, it's just this coincidence uh, that, you know, I'm really into mushrooms this year. And everybody, everybody who knows me will verify that. Mm. And then... I get what seems like a message to me <laughs> growing, you know, right where I walk by every day. And um, so I work at an inner tribal school and mm-hmm. I um, was talking to my Oneida teacher because it seemed like a message and I didn't quite get what the message was at first. And then I started to describe to her what mushrooms do. And, and how, you know, they're an integral part of the forest. And, and they really help support the life of the forest. And how the, the, they grow underneath the ground. And, and there's like mycelium, like everywhere, like miles and miles of it. But you never see it until all of a sudden it bursts forth. And you for a brief moment, you see a manifestation of it. And so as I was describing it to her, I got the message that it was trying to confer you know i talked about my my skeptical nature mm-hmm. and how i'm always looking for a message you know that this is real that there's some objective reality to fortiana and you know spirit specifically and then as i was describing this to the united teacher i got the message that that spirituality is like this mycelium growing underneath everything supporting everything and you only very rarely see it burst forth but it's always there and it's pervasive yeah, no, that's that's an excellent point. It's almost, um, I mean, that's an argument for you know uh, these 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 fungi to almost have some sort of governing role in reality, which is sort of a far out idea. But um, if if you look at the way that a certain you know certain certain substances like that do interface with our consciousness, it seems like less of a crazy idea. I mean, like I I consider myself. A skeptic too, uh, for the most part. You know, I, I like a lot of this. Like, you, if you start talking to me about reptoid conspiracies, my eyes glaze the hell over. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I don't, I don't, I don't care. Um, but uh, if if you, if you start to once you start to realize that perhaps our brain isn't something that generates consciousness as a byproduct. Perhaps it is something that's more akin to a television set where it can tune into certain channels and it can actually have a, a non-local consciousness can actually uh, manifest itself through our brain. It makes a lot more sense of things like altered states of consciousness. Um, It makes a lot more sense of how perhaps there are certain phenomena that interact with that model and are able to present themselves in ways that that they you know that they wish to um appear that transceiver model if you if you read uh, a brief history of consciousness by gary lackman really goes into like how the idea that we uh we think of that everything comes with with from our own brain you know right but then there's these situations of people who lack those parts of the brain that you that you need to have to have personality to have consciousness and there's no brain there and they still have it yeah there are these stories that are not apocryphal that are actually you know pretty well documented of people who have literally 10 percent of the brain mass that everybody else does um and uh and 
that they still have what appear to be, you know, that's not discovered until they go in for something completely unrelated. They actually, you know, they, uh, they, they have a fully functioning personality. They have a fully functioning, you know, life. Um, and interestingly enough, I mean, like, you know, you, on the other hand, you find people who, um, I mean, what I love about the particular, the particular, uh, metaphor, that particular way of seeing the way that we, live in our day-to-day world is that it explains so much. I mean, you know, if you, if something happens to the brain, if, if I put, if I put a golf club through my TV screen, it doesn't mean that the, the signal is gone. It just means that the TV is now incapable of rendering that or can only re- render it in a, you know, a significantly diminished capacity. And it also means that you watch the last episode of lost. If you put your golf club. <laughs> oh in man. Oh man. I was so close to doing that. I was so frustrating. Oh, so frustrating. Don't go there. But you know, I, I have to commend both of you because like it's, it's my, it's, it's so uh, acquaintance of mine, Mike Clellan once said that if you are talking about, you know, aliens or something and you don't get into the big questions, um, after a certain amount of time, you're kind of probably talking to the wrong people. And like, here we are, like we're so far afield from what we originally started talking about. <laughs> I think that's, I think that's a great endorsement right. of, of the way from- you guys think. No, that's, this is exactly what you, I, I would have been disappointed if this hadn't happened. So this is exactly the sort of, yeah, you're, you're, you're well, people. Smells bad. So. Oh, wait, is there, is there consciousness? Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, it's, <laughs> the, these are the right conversations to be having. So, and, and also I think the- that's, that's where we're all going at, you know? Well, um, talk a little bit about, because we're, ta- we're back to talking about the brain now. So so maybe you could talk about the, the relationship with, with the sense of smell to the brain and, and why, you know, that's so uh, important. And, and, you know, we talked about maybe alarms, but, you know, is there any different uh, way that the brain perceives smells as opposed to other senses? Well, it's fascinating because um, we don't we still don't quite understand how smell works you know there's certain things that you find out that science isn't completely as um doesn't have locked down as much as they'd like to, you to think they do like sleep is another one of those things we don't entirely understand the mechanisms for sleep um i just saw an article talking about how we don't quite even understand water certain things about water um and and smell is definitely one of those things nobody has a really good idea of exactly how smell works the most common and most popular uh idea is that there's sort of a key lock configuration where certain Sit molecules, you can conceptualize that as a key, um, uh, are compatible with certain cells in our nose, which you can conceptualize as locks. And that sort of simulation um, is really relayed to the olfactory bulb, which then fires some electrical impulses at the amygdala, which is responsible for a lot of emotions. Real quick, is this an urban legend, like the idea that you can only detect... 20 kind of smells, or like how many smells your nose can get detected? Because I, I feel like I can detect like flatulence... Uh, something dying and old lady perfume are the only three smells that I even know exist. <laughs> no, there's, there is, there's not a lot of evidence to suggest an idea like that. I mean, there's, there's, there's definitely, so it's difficult because, um, because smell often works in conjunction with other senses. Um, smell, the way that we interpret a smell is quite often influenced by other sensory information. So if we, the, the, my favorite example is that if I hold up a piece of Parmesan cheese under your nose and tell you I just, you know, barfed into a bucket, you're probably going to recoil. And if I, if I tell you I'm making, you know, if I tell you I'm making Italian food, you're probably going to smile. Um, so there is, there is a lot to suggest that it works best in tandem with other, with other senses. Um, 
what is definitely certain is that is that the amygdala you know is is very much tied into is very much tied into emotion and memory and and all these sort of uh, involuntary actions and because of that um because of that smell is very much linked into into how we remember things. So the, to, to the extent that certain people who have, are having uh, experience experiencing Alzheimer's actually uh, have noticed a diminished sense of smell. Um, anyone who's ever had you know a, a, a lover and has smelled their perfume on someone else will realize that regardless of how good that relationship was or not, they will remember that person without even being able to you know to force that sort of emotion off. So um, it becomes it becomes apparent that. This is a scent that this is a scent rather a sense rather that is um, ripe for manipulation. I mean, I can't I can't imagine being an entity that has the sort of control over experiences that um, that these phenomena appear to be able to, um, and, and 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 having access to this very intimate, very easily manipulated. Um, since that we have as humans. Um, so I, I, that's sort of where a lot of this grew out of is like how, how much perhaps we are being deliberately deceived to bring in the, uh, to bring in the title of the book, or perhaps we're being deliberately man, uh, manipulated by these phenomena via our smell. I think that's, that's a question that definitely deserves some extra investigation. So where does the idea of the, the brimstone deceit, like, what are we being tricked about when it comes to the smell of sulfur uh, and rotten eggs? Well, I don't think it's, I don't think it's necessarily being tricked as it is, be, as much as it is being manipulated. Um, if you look at, again, if you look at the way that these phenomena tend to intersect, they seem to be using. If we're not looking at the same thing, we're looking at different things with similar methods. At the very least, um, so it seems to suggest that perhaps these scents are being used, if not to communicate something to us on a you know a, a subconscious level. Um, perhaps these particular scents are being used to deliberately influence how we act, or as I sort of go into later in the book, um, being being used to place us into a a certain space in which these things can interact with us. Um, so hydrogen sulfide, which is the, the most common. So, okay, let me back this up a little bit. If people say that they smell sulfur, generally speaking, they're smelling hydrogen sulfide. They might smell sulfur dioxide, which is that gunpowder firework smell, but gunpowder don't make it barf. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. In, In my, in my experience, people generally are conflating sulfur with, with um with hydrogen sulfide and it's interesting because hydrogen sulfide is highly toxic um there have been for example uh in the i believe it was the late 90s or early 2000s um there was a series of uh, uh suicides in japan where people were creating hydrogen sulfide out of existing cleaning products and they were puffing it and dying um but at the same time, you know, technically Good any <laughs> technically any gas that isn't oxygen, if you breathe enough of it, it's going to be toxic because you're not getting enough oxygen. Um, 
but uh, it's it's a it's a very dangerous compound. But interestingly enough, in the past uh, six years, it's been revealed that hydrogen sulfide, when uh, used in proper amounts and administered carefully, can actually induce suspended animation in mammals. Um, mm. Again, this this so th- this idea ties into the possibility that perhaps. Um, we need to be in an altered state of consciousness to interact with these intelligences. Um, you know, the, the suspended animation thing is interesting to me because so many times in paranormal encounters, people talk about being frozen to the spot or, you know, the alien waved a wand and I was paralyzed or I couldn't move because I was staring at the Bigfoot or the, and the ghost froze me in my tracks. All these things tend to suggest these different things. And if, if you look at, if you look at the way perhaps that we co-create and the context in which our environment perhaps plays in these events, um, perhaps, you know, if, if you encounter this intelligence, whatever it is in a deserted forest, you're going to interpret, or you're going to be helped along the road to interpreting it as Bigfoot. If you see something strange in the skies, you might be helped along the way to interpreting that as, um, a UFO. And sometimes the physical aspect of the smell is how we, uh, you verify it. It's, yeah. it's how we. It's how we get there. It, it's you how know, you get like there. Yeah. Right. We so might, we we might need to have that smell in our in our faces, like oh god. Right, because like the molecules are actually getting in us when we're when we're smelling something. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's an invasion in a lot of ways. Um, and you so know, it's, it can act like a. It act like it's like a. It's like an antenna booster. Yeah, yeah. Um, that that's a good way to put it too. Um, and and, and so, so the book is called The Brimstone Deceit. It actually talks about like a lot of other smells too, because. Uh, sulfur compounds represent only a um, a plurality, in my experience, of these of, uh, of of supernatural encounters. Meaning, you know, the the largest portion, but not a majority. If that makes any sense, oh, no, it totally makes sense after Indian buffet. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's really interesting to me that a lot of the other smells that you encounter that aren't uh, hydrogen sulfide are what are referred to as trigeminal stimulants, which are Smells that actually uh, activate a response system or a nerve system in the face and actually will bring us... Smelling salts are a good example. Will actually bring us out of a, a, a state of diminished consciousness. Um, so it seems like you see these two different smells on a, on, a, on, a, on a spectrum, on a continuum. If you can get out of a stupor with smells, can you be put into a stupor with smells? Right. right. I mean, is it like a doorway? Uh, yeah, I, mean, I would I would contend that that's a possibility. I mean, again, I, my 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 model and my theorizing um, it it suggests that you would need some sort of um, highly refined control system to administer these sort of smells and complete control. But I mean, is there is there anything for us to believe that that isn't the case in a lot of these experiences? I mean, again, the fact that we don't have more concrete proof, I do think we have photographic proof in some sense of a lot of these phenomena, but the fact that it isn't more concrete suggests that they are in complete control of these experiences. So perhaps they can <clears throat> shift us in and out of um, of certain certain states of consciousness that allow us to interface with them sort of like wow. the set and setting thing, right? You know, that yeah. th- th- there has to be the, uh, the stage has to be set for us to have these experiences and then we can, you know, then we can interact. And it's I, I, what I like about it too, is that you sometimes run into um, multiple witness sightings of certain phenomena that actually have conflicting witness reports. You know, two, three, two people will say, I saw this two other people will say, I didn't see it. Um, and perhaps, you know, 
biology, personal individualized biology is, is the reason for, for, for some of those events happening. Right, because if it doesn't exist on the physical plane, if it just exists on the uh, in like the mental plane, and it's it is a transceiver, then what happens is that some people reacted, the transceiver was able to pick it up, and some people weren't, and their transceiver wasn't able to pick it up. You know what you just said, Josh, made me think about my wife used to work at a cat care clinic in mm-hmm. in the west side of Madison, right? And so one thing she learned about the cat care clinic was she's like, oh, man, even the cats, if they're the worst, you just grab them by the back of the neck. You grab them by the back of the neck and lift it up a little bit, and all of a sudden they get calm. Yeah, they have that switch. Right, they yeah. have that switch when you grab them. What might the- our switches be? Yeah, imagine, right. imagine being positioned I so... applied our switch? Yeah, even if, even if you... Because I think it's probably pretty obvious to anybody listening at this point, but like I'm not a big extraterrestrial hypothesis guy, but even if you sure. ascribe to that... An intelligence that is sitting so far above us would probably know that, and would probably be able to take advantage of that. I think that it's that it's 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 a consideration that deserves more attention than than we've given it. And the, and the, the funny thing is, is that nobody's talked about smells. And the first book we have on the brimstone deceit, we're already going to how we're being manipulated by <laughs> the aliens got us by the by the bad <laughs> smells, man. Go ahead, Allison. Allison, Sorry. Yeah, yeah. So, okay. So, all this is reminding me of um, something that I read recently um, regarding uh, this idea uh, called the the pheromone theory. And um, it's it's really a hypothesis. But uh, so, I'm reading this book, uh, The Ghost That Haunted Itself, the story of the Mackenzie Poltergeist by um, by Jan Andrew uh, Henderson. And in there, he posits this idea that perhaps, you know, what, what's happening with um, the Mackenzie poltergeist, which is a, a very active phenomena where, where people are, are going in, into uh, Greyfriar Cemetery and they're in the black mausoleum and then something reaches out and, and strikes them or scratches them or causes them to faint. And, and there's lots of stories. I was that, touched there. You were? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Tell Mike. Tell about your experience. No, we went to the Great Fire Cemetery, and we sat in the. And I was in the far back. I was the farthest back you could be, and I thought Chris tapped me on the shoulder. My my wife. I thought that she tapped me on the shoulder, and then I, and I'm like, nope. Chris was like a foot. Away, like her arm couldn't even reach over there. So you so, actually had an experience there. You actually yeah. felt something. Yeah, but you know, when it comes to like touch experiences, I never get too excited about it because it's like, oh, it could have been just my head or whatever. But I, I felt something turned well, around. I thought it was Chris it, putting her it arm. It comes back me. to what we were talking about, you know, writing stuff off again, right? <laughs> right. I yeah, totally wrote it just, off. I'm just like, don't ah, just I got brush touched. it off. You know, maybe something really did happen there. Yeah, but I was Mackenzie'd by the poltergeist. <laughs> well, I heard that's what he likes to do. All right. <laughs> so anyway, the the idea is that that maybe what's happening here in you know all these these experiences with the poltergeist is, is the same as what's happening in in like you know mass hysteria situations where um, something is is triggering our alarm system and it's some kind of pheromone release is what the pheromone theory posits uh, that is is causing uh, the group to experience. Experience uh, something, and and that, that would be you know explained too why you know s- some people react more strongly than others, but you know yeah. also the group think aspect of it where where it's like contagious. Well, here's here's <laughs> yeah, I mean that, that those are all excellent points. I mean, I have a problem with this idea, not with what you said, but with this idea that materialist science has that something can be in your mind and not be real. Like I have a problem with that, you know, um, 
my love for my wife is in my mind. I can't quantify it in any sort of objective way, but it's completely real. Um, and I know it's real, and you can't tell me otherwise, because you're full of... Can I curse? <laughs> you're full of something. Um, full of something. So, yeah, full of something. Um, so, yeah, and I, I find that... I found that really quite problematic in terms of the way that we have 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 managed to paint ourselves into this sort of materialist corner. Yeah. That's a good way but, to put it. Paint ourselves to a materialist corner. But maybe, you know, like a, a some kind of pheromone release is 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 really proof that, you know, something out there well, is manipulating our sense yeah, of smell. Well, it, I, I, we, we're so I, I think that the um you reminded me of this too. I think that smells are actually, even in and of themselves, a potent metaphor for the paranormal in general. I mean, it's so it's like the fourth time I mentioned it. But uh, again, uh, chaos magician Gordon White mentioned um, we live in a magical world. Not all of us necessarily, you know, inter- interface with it. It's sort of like being a dentist. You know, we all have teeth. We're not all dentists. So whether you like it or not, this is sort of the world that we are enmeshed in, and it. Uh, it seems to me that smell might be a very, uh, very poignant metaphor for uh, how we, for, for for the paranormal. Um, you know, it's it's constantly around us. Um, sometimes we notice it, sometimes we don't, but it's always influencing us. Sometimes it influences us more strongly than others. But it's it's this unseen thing that is constantly around us that we are we are inter- interfa- interfacing with it, whether we like it or not. And I, I think that's a great way to end the conversation today in that um, we are interfacing with this world, the weird world, the, the interesting world, the far more interesting world of I think, whether we like it or not. And so, uh, Josh, if people would like to pick up copies of your sweet books, where can they find them? <laughs> well, both are available. Both the Trojan Feast and the Brimstone Deceit are available from Barnes and Noble and Amazon.com um, in a variety of formats, um, including a bunch of popular e-reader formats, including Kindle, um, and some e-reader formats I've never even heard of. So <laughs> maybe that's maybe that's for you as well. Um, my personal website is JoshuaCutchen.com. I try to put up a blog every couple months. It's not a blog post every couple months. Short form fiction is not necessarily my strong suit, but you can find links to all my uh, inter- interviews and appearances there. Um, a, a great many of which are uh, part of the podcast that I'm part of called Where Did the Road Go? Uh, which you can also hear that podcast. I'm on there probably every other week at uh, wheredidtheroadgo.com a round table with myself, Soraya Azkath, Red Pill Junkie, and Michael M. Hughes. And, and this is fascinating. I mean, I really, really could talk to you all day. Well, I, <laughs> There's so I, many I questions I still have. I can't believe we have to be well, done. <laughs> well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to invite Josh again on in a couple of months, so we're going to do another one. Oh, I would love yeah, that. Anytime. Seriously, you guys don't have a guest. Just check in with me and see if we can make it happen because um, because the, and I, I wouldn't say that for everybody because there, there, are some pe- <laughs> there are some people that I talk to and we, we, don't, we don't ask the right questions. But like we went so far afield in a good way. This is You were good people, so I, I would be happy to appear again. Thank you, I would love to talk to you guys again. Thank you so much. Make sure you guys go check out Josh's books because uh, I have read them and they're really good and there's a lot of information and it's stuff you have not thought about. So if you're looking at a new way to look at the paranormal and Fortiana, then Joshua Cutchin's stuff is going to be right up your alley. Now, Allison, if people are interested in finding your research, where can they find you? You can find me at milwaukeeghosts.com. 
Fantastic. And all of this stuff is going to be available at the show notes at othersidepodcast.com slash 119. Thank you, guys. So Josh was a lot of fun to talk to. And Allison was so excited to have this conversation with him. She like texted me beforehand. She's like, I've got like a million questions for him. So like, can we get through all the questions? I'm like, if we don't get through all the questions, we're going to have him on again. It's no problem. That's great. Love the enthusiasm, Allison. Yeah, I really do. And, um, you know, we talked a lot about the fae and the fairies. And um, we also talked about being old a little bit at the beginning of the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) And so we we thought for a perfect one is... Uh, let's play the first song we ever wrote as the band Sunspot. Oh, yes. So we originally wrote this song in 1996. Whoa. And inspired by the dark nature of fairies, here is Sunspot with Morgan Le Fay. Me. I'll play 
for listening to today's episode. You can find us online at othersidepodcast.com. Until next time, see you on the other side. Ooh, it's Thanksgiving week. It is Thanksgiving week, and we need to give thanks. We do. <laughs> so let's thank our wonderful Patreon community. You guys, you For patrons. all your support. Oh, the best. Oh, my God, you're so good. Seriously. And it's a rest- really help us out. The rest of you would like to get in on some of that Patreon action. The place to go to is OthersidePodcast.com slash donate. And then you can join and we'll be thanking you every week in addition That's to right. our A-W-E-S-O-M-E Patreons. And a special shout out to Ned. Ned, who uh, was at the party on Friday and also had his birthday yep. in November. So happy birthday, Yes, thank Ned. you, Ned. Happy birthday. And everybody have a great Thanksgiving. We love you all. And we'll see you next week. Stuffing turkeys. I don't know why I said I was going to tell you, it's like in. Turkey stuffings. I said stuffing turkeys instead. I don't know if I'm going to keep that.